You're never the same. You can teach doctrine, you can teach principles, you can teach ideologies, but what makes, what makes Christianity different from everything else is He touches you and all the joy that floods your soul. Because only He satisfies. Because you were made, we were all made to be satisfied only by Him and a touch from Him. There's nothing the world can offer you that can satisfy. There's nothing that any religion can offer you that can satisfy. They may satisfy your curiosity. They may satisfy certain longings that you have, but they can't satisfy the inner need and desire of your heart. Only Jesus can. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Daniel. And then we'll pray. Daniel chapter 1. in here this morning. There we go. Father, we're so grateful today that you've touched us. We're here today because you've touched us. There's maybe some that need another touch. There may be some here this morning that they've never felt that touch of you. They've just been drawn here because either they feel they need to be here, they may be here because they're curious. For whatever the reason may be, Father, we're grateful that everyone that is here and we seek to be touched by your Spirit today. For He is the Spirit of life, that He may breathe life into us, renew the life of some, bring new life into others, and to open the eyes of our understanding. Father, we come to you because your word says that there are things that you have for us that our eyes have not seen, that our ears have not heard, nor has it entered into our hearts all that you prepared for those who love you, but your spirit's been given to us to reveal those things to us. And so we call upon the Holy Spirit today to do that. We thank you that you've given to your church the word of God, your word, a living word. God breathed to be li- that is alive. And today it is prepared to speak into our lives and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who takes that word and breathes it into our lives, touches us with it, that it may become something real down inside of us, beyond what our mind can understand, that our hearts may begin to see things that we've never seen before, especially of you. And for the grace to do that, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We've been talking for... I looked back, it's almost a year about worship. And my mind looks at something like that and said, with time short the way it is and with all the things going on, maybe we should have been talking about other things. And yet, in my spirit, I know that if we went on, there's still more we could know and there's still so much more we can know. But it is a critical thing and this is the more I've studied it, I began my study of it with the honest acknowledgement to God, I don't know much about it. I know it's more than just singing slow songs, but I don't know exactly what it is, and I don't know that I've ever really fully 
fully experienced it, but God, you put me in a position to lead this congregation into this, so you're going to have to teach me. And as I open my heart and acknowledge where I really am to him, he's very faithful to do that, and he'll do that in your lives. That's why I share that with you. God knows you don't know everything. Sometimes we're the ones that have to find that out. And just be honest and acknowledge where you are, and God then can move in that place of honesty and acknowledgement with his grace. And he will do that, and he's very faithful to do that. The Holy Spirit says in 1 John, is a teacher that's been given to us. He's been sent to lead us into all truth, and especially about God. And so as we've gotten into this, God's begun to reveal more to me and share more with you. And and I'm not sure we're done completely with this, but we're going to begin to move on to something else. But before we did, I have a sense of something. The sense to, to end this discussion about worship with a very important focus. And the lesson of this to me is why it shows me how critical worship is in the spiritual warfare in which we're involved. Whether you realize it or not, you're in a war. In natural wars, you see, well, we've got drive-by shootings now, and, you know, it's almost, almost so common that we just look at it and say, well, there was another one somewhere else, instead of being shocked the way we used to be. But there's gangs out there, even here in Providence and even around here. There's gangs that war with each other. The nation of Mexico that we've been to for a number of times on a missions trip is in a war. It's in a war between the, between the government and, 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 and drug lords that are fighting among each other. Well, when they're shooting bullets at you and dropping bombs on you, you know you're in a war. But we're in a spiritual war. And in that war, you can't always see what the bullets are. You can't always see the flaming darts that Ephesians 6 talks about. You may feel the effects of them, but you don't realize what they are, so you get mad at somebody. And the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle, so our enemy is a spiritual force. It's Satan. So what's that got to do with worship? Because he opposes it. What we're going to look at this morning is how he opposes it. And we're going to look at it because I believe in the time in which we live and we are heading into the, this understanding and the, and the reason why we spend so much time in worship is going to be absolutely critical to our not just survival, but our success in carrying out what God's called us to do as Christians. Worship is not something we just do on Sunday morning. It's not an option. It's going to be critical to spiritual breathing. As a pastor, and this is not in my normal personality because those who know my wife and my family that know me know that I'm, I, 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 I like to please people. I like people happy with me. I want to tell you wonderful, good, exciting things, you know. But as a pastor, I'm going to have to stand before God. James 3.1 says, Do not desire to be a teacher because a teacher has a higher degree of judgment. So I will stand before God, not just for how I live my life as a man, how I live my life as a husband, and how I live my life as a father, but I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for what I told you, whether it was the truth or not. We live in dangerous times, and I'm talking about spiritually, not talking about in other ways too. So what's on my heart to share with you this morning is to share a very simple story that many of you know if you were raised in church or Sunday school. It's a very common story, but the Lord began to open my eyes to see something about this story that we, we know so well. So everybody take a deep breath. 
we're going to be okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to allow the Spirit of God just to open our eyes to why what we're learning about worship is so critical. And then the Bible always tells us what to do. Amen? Daniel chapter 1. I'm not going to go back and go over the things we talked about about worship because I want to take the time to go through this. Daniel chapter 1. Now, what, where this is said in history is it's around 590, 600 B.C. And the, the, Israel, after Solomon's reign, Israel, because his son mishandled things, was divided into two nations. There was the northern nation, which consisted of ten of the twelve, tri- twelve tribes. And that was called the nation of Israel. And the southern two tribes, which had different kings then, was the nation of Judah. About a hundred years before this, the nation of Israel, the top ten tribes, were taken off by the nation of Assyria because they became so idolatrous that they rejected God as their God and they were dispersed abroad and have never been found again. They're called the ten lost tribes of Israel. But about a hundred years later, the southern nation of Judah fell. It didn't just fall a hundred years. It fell before then. But it kind of culminated in an idolatry And at this point, there was another enemy out there, which was the nation of Babylon. And that king was King Nebuchadnezzar. And under King Hezekiah of Judah, he made a fatal mistake because in the process of trying to to, to make Nebuchadnezzar happy, he invited his emissaries in to Jerusalem to look in the temple to see all the beautiful gold they had. Well, they went back and Nebuchadnezzar starts lapping his chops because he wanted that gold. And so years later, hundreds of years later, Nebuchadnezzar now comes to the point of conquering the southern nation of Judah. And what we're going to see is out of this nation, there were about three major... What they did is they basically took 90 plus percent of Judah and they brought them over into Babylon, which is about where Iraq and Iran are right now. They brought them in there and they left about 10% there and then they sent some of the Babylonians in there to intermarry with them. And Ezra, Nehemiah and all of those writings are about the efforts to come back and resettle that land and what they found. But what we're going to look at this morning is the first wave of people that they took from Judah, they took the cream of the crop, they took the most intellectual, they took the most educated to bring them back to see what value they could get them to do to serve in Babylon. And that's what the background to this story is that we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. And God gave them over because they were, had finally become so idolatrous. God says, all right, the only way you're going to learn what it's like to reject me is to find out what it's like to live without me. So therefore, I'm going to do this as graciously and as mercifully as I can so that you'll learn the lesson. I'm going to allow you to be taken captive by somebody that isn't going to disperse you. He's going to allow you to maintain your own identity and you're going to have the opportunity to intermarry with the Babylonians. It's up to you what you do. 
So you press God hard enough, He'll let you do what you want to do. And what happened is it became a filtering process so that those who hearts, whose hearts were committed to the Lord, in spite of the opportunity they had to live like the world, they still kept their devotion to Christ, to, to God. And those that didn't have a heart towards God intermarried and just kind of disappeared into the, into, the, into the Babylonian culture so that the end of the 70 years, what was left, there was a small, there was a remnant of Jews who were still faithful to their God. And it was God's way of sifting out those who were, wanted Him from those who didn't want Him. And we may be facing a similar situation because so much of the church isn't in church and isn't purportedly serving God because of their commitment to Him, it's for other reasons. And the evidence of it is we're so easily attracted into the world and away from our God. And so that's the background here. And look at how far it's gone that the very gold implements that were given by God and formed by Solomon for the worship of God in the temple of God And if you go back and look at the story of the dedication of the temple, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of God rolled in the back as a cloud so that nobody could stand. The presence and the power and the glory of God filled that place to the point that nobody could stand to minister because of the glory of God. And these vessels of gold were used in preparing the atmosphere so that that presence could come in. And now... It's gone to such an extent that they're now being taken and placed in the house of the gods that the Babylonians worshipped. Wow. The things that God has given us to worship Him with, if we're not careful, they can be used eventually to worship other gods. All right. I've got to get beyond verse 2. Verse 3. The king instructed... Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles and young men in whom there was no blemish, but they were good-looking. They were gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, and who had ability to serve the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them daily provisions of the king's delicacies, what he ate. And I like the word delicacies. We'll talk more about that later. And of the wine which he drank and three years training for them so that the end of that time they may serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave the names, he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah he gave the name Shadrach, to Mishael the name Meshach, and to Azariah the name Abednego. Now go over to chapter 3. What's happened in chapter 2 is the king has a dream. And none of his wise men can interpret the dream. In fact, he says, in order to know that I can trust you, you've got to tell me what the dream is before you interpret it. Because if you're wrong, and they were afraid to do it. Someone says, but there's a man in in your serving you, 
to whom his God has given him this kind of wisdom. And so Daniel's summoned, and then Daniel goes to God and says, I don't have this kind of wisdom, but if you'll give it to me, then I will use this to glorify you. And God tells him what the dream was. And Daniel goes and tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and now he has the king's attention, and then he tells him what it means. As a result, the king, the king exalts and raises up Daniel to be in a position of great responsibility, and Daniel brings along with him Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I share that with you so that you know as we begin chapter 3, which is what we're going to look at this morning, as we look at chapter 3, who these men were. These were young men that had been brought in that first wave that had been taken out of Judah over into Babylon. They'd been acknowledged by the king's eunuch to, to, as men with special ability, and they were handsome, and they were appropriate the kind of men to appear before the king, and they had trained them, and we'll talk about that later. They trained them in the ways of the king, and now... Daniel has exalted them, so these men are in positions of responsibility, positions of honor, positions of, of authority in the nation. Chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's about 90 feet, and whose width was 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And the king Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. So basically he says, go tell every government official of any position of responsibility to come to the dedication of the image which king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That's about three, four, five times in these three verses it talks about the image that the king had set up. So this is an image of gold. This is a beautiful image of the king himself that the king has set up and he's going to call for the people to come together and worship the image that the king has made of himself. Some of you are already catching on. Okay. Verse 4. Then the herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded. To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, which is like a guitar, in symphony, and all the sounds of music, you shall fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This was an image of him. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So that at the time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, in symphony, with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped 
the golden image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now remember from our study what worship is. Worship is looking up to, being in awe of, something that's greater, bigger, more wonderful than you are. It's giving greater value to something or someone else than yourself. And finally, it is bowing before or submitting to something else as the authority over your life and as the standard by which you are to live your life. So here the king, with absolute power, has decided that he is going to command, not suggest, not hope, because he had the power and the authority to do that. He's going to command the entire nation, and their nation at that time was made up of many different nationalities and languages because they conquered many nations and nationalities. And he says, you're going to be commanded to bow before and to worship an image I've made of myself. Commanded to worship it. Commanded to bow before it and acknowledge that that idol that, and who it represents is the authority in your life. That that idol sets the standards by which you are to live your life. That that idol and who it represents is, more, is worthy of your worship and worthy of your bowing before. That that idol and who it is that represents is something that you're to be in awe of because he's greater than you are. That's what was being commanded of them. That's what was being commanded of them. All we've been studying for almost a year of what worship is, is what he was commanding them to bring and offer to him who is just a man. But he demanded it and he commanded it. Now notice the price of disobeying. We've talked about this before when we talked about Adonai. The price of disobeying is that you would immediately be thrown into the fiery furnace. Not that you would be charged with treason and they would set up a trial for you six months from now and you could have a lawyer to represent you. No, you either bowed or you burned immediately. You either bowed and everything that that meant and I spend time on that so that you understand, well, what does it mean to do this? I mean, come on, just get on your knees. Oh no, it means a lot. Because what it means is I'm submitting to. What it means is I'm acknowledging that the one I'm bowing before is worthy to, for me to give honor to and stand in awe of. It's worthy of me to submit my life to and to submit my life to the standards and the values that that image has. That's what's involved in bowing. So it's not just put your knees on the ground so you save your life. By doing that, you were signifying something. By doing that, you were acknowledging from your heart that He was your supreme ruler. He was your source of everything. That He was worthy of you to give your life to and for. That's what was being demanded. And you either did that or you burned Immediately. Let's move on. 
Notice. Let's read it again. Verse 5. At the time you hear the sound. Stop there a second. We have been made by God to respond to sounds. To respond to voices. A child at the earliest age can recognize the voice of its mother. And a mother can recognize the voice of its child. I remember years ago when our granddaughter was in the nursery, I was up here doing something, and I, somebody opened the door and there was somebody crying in the nursery. I could tell that was her cry. And in the moment I heard her cry, I was no longer standing here as a pastor. I was a papa. Mothers can recognize the cry of their child at night. Out of a crowd, they can recognize the cry of their child. Children can recognize their parents' voice. We're trained from the smallest age to recognize voices and sounds and to respond to them. Go with me over to... Let me see, just if we have time. Romans 8, 17, don't turn there. It says, faith comes by, by what? By hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You got saved because you heard the Word of God. You got saved because you heard something. Romans 10 talks about that, 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 that how, how can they, you know, how can they know, how, how can they repent and know what Christ's done for them unless they've heard. How can they heard unless somebody goes and tells them, unless they hear a voice? John chapter 10. We'll come back here so you want to keep something here. John chapter 10. Most assuredly, verse 1, I say to you, he who, does, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in some other way, that's illegally, that's same as a sheep, a thief, excuse me, and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings them out, his own sheep go before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. And yet by, they will by no means follow a stranger but will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers." Over in verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and follow them. What's he talking about here? Well, it's a little hard for us in our society to understand this, but what they would do back in biblical days, and they still do it, I think, to some extent over in Israel, is when somebody, when, when a shepherd would bring his flock into a village or something, 
You don't want to bring them in town because you don't have all the sheep. So they would bring them into a sheep fold, which, is a, which was a, a, an area where they had a fence around it, and they would bring their sheep in there. And, and every, every shepherd that came into that town or that city or village would put their sheep in that same... So all the sheep are mixed together. The shepherd would go in and do his business or what, and then he would come out. Now he's got to get his sheep out from all those other sheep that are in there. So what would he do? He would speak to them. And because they recognized his voice, when they heard his voice, because what are sheep doing most of the time? Their nose is in the ground eating. When they heard his voice, they lifted their heads up and they looked for where the voice was coming from. And then as he began to move away, they would come out from among the other sheep themselves and follow him. How did that happen? Because he lived with them. He lived with them. They heard his voice all the time. And he recognized their... He, even to the point that he could recognize the individual bleeding, their own voices, and recognize his own sheep by the sound. Because he lived among them. He spent time... He spent time with them, speaking to them. And because they spent time with their shepherd, they could hear his voice. They could recognize his voice when he speaks to them. Some of you have been saying, boy, it's so hard to hear God's voice if you spent more time listening to it. It may be easier to recognize Marianne Brown, when she was still here one time on her visit, told us a story she saw firsthand. She was on a tour of Israel. And I don't know, Luann, well, she's here somewhere. I saw her earlier that, that she may have seen something like this. She said, we were in a bus one time, and the bus, the, the bunch of, a number of shepherds were bringing their sheep from one side of this road to the other, so it stopped the bus. You got all these sheep going across the road, bah, 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 across the road, and, and you've got these shepherds, and, she, and, and the guide said when they got across the road, because there were different paths, he said, watch this, watch this. As they got across the road, the shepherds began to make noises. One would make a clicking noise, whatever the noise was. And the moment they did, she said it was amazing. The sheep lifted their head up, looked at the shepherd, and they went off after that shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. And the voice of a stranger, they will not follow. Isn't it interesting that when a cattle drive, where they also mix the animals from different ranches together, that when it comes to the stockyard and it comes to separate them out, the ranchers doesn't stand up and call them by name. In fact, in order to recognize which steer belongs to which ranch, they have to brand them. Wouldn't it be easier to just recognize his voice? Then have to be branded. But you see, you lead sheep, you drive cattle. A shepherd leads sheep by being in front of them, but not so far in front that he doesn't know where they are. 
cowboys get behind the herd and drive it by yelling at it because there's no relationship with the cattle. The sheep have a relationship with the shepherd. And I went through all of that because isn't it interesting? Now let's go back to Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to read it again. This is worth spending time on because this is where we are today so much in the church. At the time you hear the sound, the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music. Notice that the herald, notice the one announcing it was time to bow and worship the government's idol. Notice it wasn't simply an announcement, it's now time to bow. Notice it wasn't a publication in the newspaper or on the internet. Notice it wasn't writing in the sky or billboards, and I don't, they didn't have those then, but some other method of communication. And listen carefully to this. That's why we're taking time on this. It wasn't an announcement that says it's time to bow and worship. It was a conditioning of the people that when they heard the music that the king wanted them to hear, to condition them that when you hear this worship, this music, you are to bow and worship me, basically. The symbol of me. The representative of me. You are to bow and you are to worship all that we've talked about worship. And you are to do it in the midst of music and of singing to me. And my brothers and sisters, unfortunately, that's where too much of the church is today. We've been conditioned by the music of the world, by the sounds of the world. That's why I want to dwell on this idea of hearing and of sound, because it's a conditioning, it's a training, it's a drawing. They didn't know this was coming, they didn't realize this, but suddenly there's an announcement that when they hear the music, which they've been hearing all along, it's time now to bow to what was behind that music. I never thought of it in these terms until, <coughs> excuse me, a few years, that was last year, I think it was, when Lafayette Skills was here. I don't remember what, what the particular verses were he was using, but he talked about how the children, how the children didn't any longer speak, this was back in those days, didn't any longer speak Hebrew, but they spoke Chaldean. In other words, they learned to speak the language of the nation that they were in. Now remember, this is a foreign nation. They've been brought out of where God gave them, what God intended for them. And they had been brought into a pagan, ungodly society, 
and they had been allowed to intermingle with them. Not just to physically be among the people, but to intermarry with them and to, to, to take on whatever practices they took on. They were allowed to have their own church service, which is where the synagogue came from. The synagogue, was because they couldn't go to the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so they formed their own, in their communities, they formed their own little places of gathering, and they called it a synagogue or a teaching center. And that's where it came from. And the government allowed them to do that, but it also allowed them to go and do whatever they wanted to do and become as much Babylonian as they wanted. And so they became enthralled with the music, they became enthralled with the clothes. They became enthralled with all the ways of the Babylonian society. And now when those ways are used as a signal to bow and worship their king and the image of their king, there's nothing that restrains them because they've been conditioned. Well, what difference does that make? What difference does it make? Who's behind it is my question. What spirit is behind it, and what purpose is behind that spirit? John says at one point, there are many voices out there, and none of them without significance. Now, I think that's in Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14. There are many voices out there. Many what? Voices. Many sounds. Many voices out there, and none of them are without significance. We're being bombarded with sounds. Some of it's just noise, but the purpose of that noise is to get us conditioned so that we can't be at peace and hear inside. We have to have noise so we can't be quiet. It's when we're quiet that we can hear more clearly from God. But we're so used to having to listen to something and watch something and do something. And I have to deal with this myself. My wife will tell you, you know, I may sit and we may sit and watch a nice program on TV and the next thing I know I got to be in my phone. I got to be looking for nothing. It's just hard to sit there and do one thing. So I've been disciplining myself. Put it down. I'll put it down. It's incredible how hard it is for me to just sit there and watch a stupid TV program, let alone just sit there and pray. And if I'm having trouble doing that, how much more are younger generations who have been more conditioned by always having something going on, we're being trained so that we don't know how to be quiet, be still, and know that I am God. We have to recognize the time we're in that there's something going on that we've been blind to and don't realize. It's not, oh, I can't watch TV, I can't. It's not a matter what you can and cannot do. Understand what it's about and understand what's behind it and then choose if that's what you want and where you want to go and that's one of the reasons we're looking at this we're going to take a little bit of time to do this because it's critical when you hear the sound of the harp when you hear the sound of the music in symphony playing together with a purpose then you're to bow down in worship. All right. Verse 8. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews, these three men. And they spoke and said to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery and symphony, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They've not served your gods and worshipped the golden image, which you set up. Stop there. So these three men, we'll talk about Daniel later on. These three men apparently were not conditioned so that when they heard the sounds, the music, the voices that the, that the society had been conditioned with, apparently when they heard that, they were not conditioned to bow their knees. And we'll learn why later. And that made them angry. It made their other officers and officials angry, say so they go tell the king, wait a minute, there's three God Jews, three Jews that you've set over provinces and they're not bowing their knee when they hear the music that you set up. When they hear the music of Babylon, they're not bowing their knee to it. And you said if somebody doesn't bow their knee, they're going to be cast immediately into the fiery furnace. Well, let's see what happens. So this is a challenge now. They train themselves to respond to different sounds. Remember what Jesus said? My sheep hear my voice. And the voice of a stranger they don't recognize. What voices do we recognize? What voices draw us? What sounds draw us? What, 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 when you're just kind of going through your day, what are you singing to yourself? Beatles music? Or whatever, you know, the boss or whoever it is, you know, whatever the music it is. What are you singing? What's in your heart? Because out of the abundance of the heart. I was thinking this week, I'm just noticing this week, there's certain songs that we've been singing here. And I'll find myself going through the day just singing those songs. Jesus be the center of my soul, heart. Jesus be... And I realize, I'm so glad we sing those more than just once. Because they're getting, they get ingrained in me and I start singing them back. Worshiping God. Driving my car. In the shower. You know, whatever I'm doing. Just singing and making melody <coughs> unto the Lord. Conditioning. Amen. Conditioning myself so that I hear the sounds of God and not respond to the sounds of the world wants to train me to respond to. All right. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so they brought these men before the king. 
And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I've set up? Now if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery and symphony and all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image which I've made. Good! But if you don't worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who God, whose God is able to deliver you from my hands? He's given him a second chance. Now, it's one thing when you're there in their office and they hear that music to not rush out and bow down. It's another thing when the king has summoned you before him who has the absolute power of life and death over you and you're standing there, there's you, the king, and the fiery furnace. And now you're looking at the consequence of your choice. And so the king gives them a second chance so they can see the fiery furnace. He's giving them a second chance. I want you to see what inside of them, they're now looking at what this is going to, it's not a concept anymore. They're facing the reality of what their worshiping God might cost them. And they're giving a second chance to compromise and to bow their knee so that they can preserve their life. Now the first thing I want you to see out of this little mini-series we're doing here, notice, notice what Nebuchadnezzar's, but the other men, notice what they come to challenge in these men's lives. And of course, we know who's behind that. We know Satan's behind that. What is he coming to challenge in their life? It's their worship. He's coming to challenge their worship. He's coming to challenge their worship and threaten their worship so that they'll worship what he wants them to worship. That's what's at stake here. That's originally what I saw in my heart about why this was important to look at at the end of our discussion, end of our study of worship, of all the things that threaten Satan. It is the worship of God's church. And the things Satan came in the garden to, to change was to divert their worship from the true God to worshiping him. This isn't about Nebuchadnezzar. This isn't about some golden statue that's 90 feet high. This is about the spiritual being, Satan, that was behind that. This was about worshiping him and his system and his values and his authority and his will and his ways. And my brother and sister, just as the Israel, Judah in those days, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were living in a foreign land with foreign gods, with foreign values that were rebellious and, 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 and offensive to God and, and denying God in the same way we're beginning to live in a nation and a society that's just like that. Amen. So do not be surprised if the outcome of this is that the focus on the church will be to come 
and to challenge our worship of the true and living God. It may not come as a law saying we can't worship him. It may come by presenting something to us that's a counterfeit that we're required to worship and that all... See, they could have worshipped their God and the golden idol, but you can't do that and worship God. You can't have two gods. You can't serve God and mammon, Matthew 6, 19. You can't serve them. And so they could have compromised and just bowed their knee to save their life, saying, well, you know, it's okay, I'm doing this because I'm preserving my life so that I can go on and represent God and I can continue to do the things of God so God will understand why I'm doing this, but I'm really just going to worship God. No, it was, they had to worship God or Nebuchadnezzar. You can't do both. You can't do both. All right. Notice, they were very faithful in their service. They hadn't done anything wrong. They hadn't, they hadn't you know, stolen money from the treasury. They'd been faithful. They'd been righteous. They were doing everything they were supposed to do. So the only grounds that they could attack them for was the God that they worshipped. The only grounds that the king's men could find to challenge them on was the God that they worshipped, their worship of their God. Oh, that that would be the only thing people could find about us that they could challenge. And challenge it, they, we, we will happen. All right. Let's move on quickly and then we're going to have to, we're not going to finish this this morning. Well, one other aspect here, and I mentioned this, but I want, to, I want to point something out to you, because it's important to understand our adversary. What they were being required to worship was a physical statue. It's what Isaiah says, it had eyes, but it can't see, it had his ears, but it can't hear, it has hands, but it can't reach out and help you. But that statue represented the king who had a purpose to have it made to represent him for people to bow before. But understand what's really going on here. Because the one that's really behind this is Satan, who is looking for them to worship him. Genesis chapter 3 starts by saying, the serpent was the most subtle of all the beasts. And Satan chose, Satan chose to enter in to the most subtle, deceptive of all the beasts so he could work his deceptiveness through his subtlety. I'm, I'm dwelling on that because we need to understand in what's going on in our society, what's even going on in church, what's going on in our lives, there is one working and wooing us, conditioning, trying to condition us 
so that we'll worship things that look harmless without recognizing that there's a subtle one that's behind it that's seeking us to worship Him. And that's my question so often with a lot of the issues that come up in Christians today. Is it okay to do this? Is it okay to watch this? Is it okay to, to do this to my body? Is it okay to do this? And my real question is, who are you worshiping by doing that? Because everything we do is some way an act of worship. This is where it's subtle. See, we think of worship as coming to church and singing to God, and everything else I do is not worship. But when you understand worship is the attitude and is an expression of something towards God, we're doing that all the time. We're expressing admiration. We're expressing devotion to. We're submitting to. We're, we're doing all those things all day long to something. And the question is, who's behind that? And who are we therefore worshiping by those little, harmless, insignificant things that we are doing that don't seem to matter? But see, that's the subtlety of it. Because gradually, slowly, by doing that, without recognizing we're being led somewhere, and ultimately we'll come to the place where we'll be required, now whether it's a physical stature, we'll be required to worship something, and our, our, in, our, our moral strength, our spiritual resolve will have, been, will have wasted away. And we want to stand, we don't want to bow, but we won't find the strength to do it because we haven't been resisting it all along. This is not a jump up and down, run around the church, rah-rah message. But it's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. And if we know the truth, and we can begin to see the truth, we won't fall for the deceptions that the enemy wants to bring. What we're going to do is we're going to pick up here next week. We haven't seen what's happened to them yet, most of you know. But we're going to walk this out, and then we're going to watch. We're going to learn next week how they were able to stand. They weren't able, because you already know, they didn't bow. We're going to look at next week, first of all, why they didn't bow. The preparation for their not bowing was years earlier. And then we're going to look at what happened because they didn't bow and what God was able to, how God was able to get the glory because they didn't bow. My brother and sisters, there's so much at stake. I cannot tell you. I'm sensing this by the Spirit. There is so much at stake in whether we learn to worship our God no matter what happens or whether we're weak and we bow our knees to whatever comes along. It's so much at stake, not just in our lives, but in God's plan and the lives that God wants to touch and affect. In each of the letters that Jesus had written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he ends by saying, to him who overcomes, and there's a promise. And we'll look at the end of next week of what it takes 
to overcome what's about to come. Amen. Father, we'd love to just think that things are going to go along and everything's just going to coast along and be happy and wonderful, but most likely the reality is not so. And you're a faithful father and a good father. And because of that, you come to your children and you tell us the truth and you prepare us ahead of time so that we'll be able to be strong and we'll be able to do what it is you've called us to do. We can't be strong in ourselves. Your word tells us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. But we have to learn to listen to you and do what you say to do so that we will be prepared so that you can work your strength in our life and in this church. And so we thank you that you love us enough to correct us, to instruct us, to teach us, to challenge us, to comfort us. We pray, Father, that what we've begun to hear today, your spirit would take in our lives and begin to, to water and to fertilize and cause to grow that we may all come together and learn to hear your voice and not the voice of a stranger. And for that grace, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we close the service,